Welcome to KBU, Dr. Carol Anderson. Thank you so much for having me. You are professor of African-American studies at Emory University and the author of five books, including White Rage, The Unspoken Truth of Our Racial Divide, which won the 2016 National Book Critics Circle Award for Criticism. Uh, you've received a long list of awards and tributes for your scholarship on racism and struggles for racial justice. So it's an honor to have you on the Old Mole Variety Hour today. Thank you. I'm so glad to be here. Well, I met you earlier this month at the annual meetings of the American Historical Association, where you spoke on a panel titled ominously, Is the United States Turning Toward Fascism? And in your talk, you spoke about the January 6th attack on the Capitol and how you understand the history behind this form of violence in the in the United States. Can, can we start there with your analysis of January 6th and then how you approach that day, some call this horrific, unprecedented day of violence on the Capitol through the, through the lens of history? I see the January 6th insurrection as being part of a long history of anti-Black violence, a history and a fear of a multiracial democracy, a fear of African-Americans asserting and using, deploying their citizenship rights, their right to vote, for instance. And you hear, when you think about the language we heard moving up to January 6th, we heard about this big lie of this stolen election, right? But where, where did they identify the theft is coming from? They said they stole the election in Atlanta. They stole it in Philadelphia. They stole it in Detroit. They stole it in Milwaukee. And so they're identifying these cities that have sizable Black populations. And those Black populations are the ones that they say committed the theft. They stole something precious and valuable from hardworking Americans. And Americans in that language is coded white. So you have these Black people as thieves. And so Black and criminality has been something that has been ongoing in this nation in terms of linking those two things together. And so they stole the election. These Black people stole the election. So when you have a Rudy Giuliani talking about these two poll workers in Fulton County, Georgia, which in Fulton County is Atlanta, and he's describing these women who were civic workers, right, doing civic engagement, really trying to do the work of democracy. He describes them as basically passing around ballots as if it was cocaine and heroin, describing these women as drug dealers. Again, you begin to get that kind of linkage of blackness with criminality. And so what you saw then was an overwhelmingly white mob attack the Capitol to take our country back. And that was to take it back from those people who stole the election from us, who stole democracy from us. And so the root of, of racism, the root of white supremacy, and the fear of a viable functioning multiracial democracy is foundational to me to understand what January 6th was about. So part of the panel that you were part of took up this question of fascism. And of course, you have a bunch of historians at all these panels. Half of the talk is defining your terms. Right. Because fascism has been around for a very long time as a slur to slap on your opponents. How do you see this as part of, and I think the idea of turning toward fascism or turning fascism, say it's better to use it an adjective, 
downplays the longer history of fascist organized groups as well as fascistic movements. How do you see January 6th in the context of questions now about fascism in the United States or the turn toward fascistic movements? I see it again as part and parcel of this larger fear of, of African-Americans asserting and deploying their citizenship rights. And so we saw that it is a, a reverence towards violence and a willingness to use violence. This is part of what we saw in the rise of Jim Crow, when you had sizable black populations in these Southern states and the fear that these black men, because at the time only men could vote, that these black men would, would basically, you would have what they called Negro domination, that these black men would take over these governments. And so one of the ways to get at that was through violence. Another key element in this was to have respected leaders in society championing this violence and identifying African-Americans as the enemy. So when you have, again, when you have a Trump say that he is going to send his followers to Atlanta, to Philadelphia, and to Detroit to guard the vote, that is, again, identifying those cities where the vote needs to be guarded by his followers. And then you also have the willingness to bend the law so that the law, you don't have the rule of law, but what you have is the law being deployed against certain people, against the people who have been identified as the enemy and allowing that law to just overlook the violence that is raining down on black folk. So when you have these lynchings, when you have these massacres, when you have these ethnic cleansings, where, where you have entire black communities wiped out, you don't have the law coming in saying, uh-uh, we're going to hold you accountable for this. And so you get the lack of accountability. So you get the shredding of the rule of law. You get the heralding of violence. You get political leaders identifying who is the enemy. And that enemy is often racialized. You also have this, this what happened in the rise of Jim Crow, the reframing of education. So history is no longer really history. History is deployed in ways that whitewashes it so that you get that slavery was a benevolent institution and that the Negroes were happy when they were enslaved. And you get the lost cause, that it wasn't that the South attacked the United States to destroy the United States of America in order to maintain slavery. It's a certain kind of nostalgia. Yes, it's a nostalgia for what they call the good old days. And it was the good old days of racial oppression. It was the good old days of slavery. It was the good old days where, it, you know, I, I go where, where Archie Bunker goes, where girls were girls and men were men. So everybody knew their place. It was about what is your place. And so it is about a racial hierarchy and also a gendered hierarchy. And so that is that is that is what we had during the rise of Jim Crow, because we also had a coup during that era. We, in 1898 in Wilmington, North Carolina, there was a government, a multiracial government that was voted in. So this is a democratic government, small d, a democratic government voted in by the people. White supremacists hated this government. They were angered that Black men had power, and they were angered that there were white folks who believed that Black people should have power, should have political power, should have a say in the way the government is run. And so they staged a coup. They said, we are going to choke Cape Fear with the carcasses of these Black folk. About 60 African-Americans were wiped out 
in this coup. And then the mob rolled in and then took over the government. They basically told the chief of police to leave. They told the mayor to leave. And they told the city councilman to leave. Basically, get on a train and get out of here or we'll kill you too. That's a coup. And then when you have the governor of North Carolina looking at them going, hello, Mr. Mayor, as if the coup did not happen, as if these weren't people who had just usurped the power and the authority of a democratic elected government but treated them as if they were legitimate. That is also part of the way that this works. You talk about backlash in some of your work, and it's a term that it's become kind of an all-purpose idiom that can be a very discouraging term that every progressive movement, you had the backlash against second wave feminism, the Black Lives Matter movement was followed by, you know, a predictable right wing backlash as predictable as the sunrise. And that's part of, as I understand it, you're, the subtitle of your book, The Unspoken Truth of a Racial Divide, and the question of who's really angry and who's, you know, <laughs> Black people are often cast, why are you so angry? Well, who's right. really angry? Right. And, but does this idea of a backlash against, the gains and progress of people of color or the oppressed in general, is, is that potentially cancel out any notion of, you know, Martin Luther King's historical arc toward justice? How do you see that? Because I think that can be discouraging for young activists to say whatever, it's a Sisyphus kind of situation, wherever we make gains, we'll be pushed back. Okay, so let me phrase it in terms of the alternative. You've got an oppressive system and you don't fight back. You don't resist. You just acquiesce to it. How is that any better? How is that any better to basically seed your soul that way, to seed your power, to seed your future? And I mean C-E-D-E as in give up. So resistance is the way that we get better, that we get closer to that moral arc of the universe. And this is what we're seeing. To me, the history of America is the history of an aspirational nation. We hold these truths to be self-evident. And that history is the way that people have fought all along to make that aspiration real. Part of the problem is that we have some politicians who try to treat that aspiration as an achievement, as if we're already there. And so when they treat it as an achievement, when folks say Black Lives Matter, or when women say we've got reproductive rights, they're like, why are you belly aching? Why are, why are you complaining? You're always complaining. It's never enough for you. It's never enough. And then so new laws come in place to block those aspirations. But we must fight back. And that's what's so essential. And, and part of that means we have to know our history. We have to know our history. We have to know what's worked in the past. We have to know what does what didn't work. We have to understand the power of divide and conquer, which is a way that co these coalitions for resistance have been basically neutralized. We have to know that. And we have to know what our goal is. We have to know our goal is, is to recognize our full humanity so that we can fly, that we don't have these things that weigh us down, that stop us from living into our full selves. You know, part of learning from our history, which which I, I think is so important, not just moving on to the next struggle, but how do we evaluate strategies that have failed, strategies that have succeeded, you know, what have been the dilemmas of movements, and a lot of young activists point to how many people come into power with the support of progressives and social justice movements and then fail them over and over again. And of course, we're seeing this now in this country with the tremendous disappointment 
of our political leaders. And of course, often these political leaders are way to the right now. The people who run the country are much more conservative than the overall populace. But what would you say to movement activists who say, you know, we get in line, we knock on doors, we vote, we get out for these people, and they disappoint us over and over. They become part of the the machinery that reproduces a system, maybe a, a bit softer, fewer violent edges, but basically the same. And I'd say, one, you have to know how the system works. And so I think about the 2010 midterm election. There was this massive disappointment in Obama because he hadn't parted the Red Sea, he hadn't walked on water, and he hadn't fed the multitude, right? And so you had a number of, of liberals, of progressives who stayed home. That was the year that you had this massive change in state governments, the red state takeover, which then led to the redrawing of gerrymandered maps. And it led to the, in the state capitals, you had this legislation coming through that was about voter suppression, that was about really heightened ending reproductive rights and about loosening up gun laws. All of the things that progressives say, oh, and about, about basically trying to, weaken legislation dealing with, with, with environmental protections and basically allowing climate change to run rampant. That happens, this is what happens when we stay home because these are folks, because of the way they drew the maps that we can't get to them regularly via voting. But, but if we hadn't stayed home, we would have had a very different kind of circumstance. We would have had very different kinds of leaders in power, leaders you can get to, leaders you can negotiate with. And hold accountable. And that you can hold accountable. And so, so much of what we did in the 2010 decade and what we're doing right now is we're fighting a rear guard action because we, we stayed home because we didn't get everything that we wanted by 2010 without really looking at the kind of system that was set up to make it doggone near impossible for Obama to part the Red Sea. So when you, when you have basically a, a Senate that says, we're going to make sure he's a one-term president. So we're going to obstruct, 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 obstruct. We have to recognize what that means. It's just like the kind of so-called disappointment in, in Biden because the student loan thing didn't go through. Why didn't the student loan forgiveness go through? Because you had Republican attorneys general, and then you had a Republican-dominated Supreme Court basically say that Biden didn't have the authority to do that. So you have the Republicans wiping away Biden's efforts to reduce the student loan debt. And so that, that young folk would be able to live without that massive burden on top of them. I mean, so this is part of what we have to understand. And it's also to understand when we stay home, that Supreme Court is a function of us not being there. That Supreme Court is a function of, of having a Republican-dominated Senate and a Republican as the president who then appointed these folks from the Federalist Society that were all about what they call basically originalism. Right. So, so what did the Constitution say when it was written? Well, you know, there were some folks who weren't able to vote when that Constitution was written. Among uh, other problems. Among other problems. Right, yeah. right. And so it is understanding how this system works. And it is really engaging with it. When we take our, our ducks and go home, 
really bad, bad things happen. So look at the trauma of the Dobbs decision. Look at the trauma of the Shelby County v. Holder decision, which then led to a wave of voter suppression laws. So those voter suppression laws were in place in 2016. And that is how Donald Trump won. Black voter turnout went down by 7% in that election. You're not only talking about, as I understand you, getting out and voting on election day as important as that is, but a broader voting rights social movement campaign and organizing as communities and movements that envision a, a different world and are refused to be intimidated by these fascists or whatever you want to call them. <laughs> Exactly, exactly. And so it means then knowing what legislation is coming through. It means contacting your representatives. It means knowing what's happening at your school board when they're when they're trying to ban books, ban books on Roberto Clemente, ban books on Anne Frank, ban books on, on Ruby Bridges, banning books. It's like they're really trying to recreate the good old days, and I put those in air quotes, of Nazi Germany in so many ways, where you have this racial hierarchy, where you have this anti-immigrant, really vicious bias, where you have this sense of gendered hierarchy, where you've got patriarchy just dominating the system, where you have a love of militarism that sees violence as cleansing, where you have a, basically a racial ideology that sees the nation, the white nation as pure, and that anybody else poisons the blood of that nation. That's the longing for the bad old days. There are a lot of anxieties and defenses holding that whole worldview together. And I suppose the other side of the story that you address in your own work is that, that there's a, another way, another vision of history and another way of looking at America as a project and a, a history that's been produced by people of color, by workers, by the labor movement, by women, and that there are histories to claim and a, a different vision of the future that we have to fight for. And I appreciate your fighting for that different world. And you're saying, don't give up. <laughs> don't give up. And it's worth it. It's worth it. If, if you begin to think about what it looks like when we don't engage, ooh, when you think about what it looks like, because over centuries we have engaged. And this is what has opened up this nation. And this is what the, the backlash really is about. This is what the fight is about. It is about a different vision of America. So there is that vision that most of us have of a vibrant, multiracial, multilingual, multireligious, multiethnic nation. And then there is that other vision, that Trumpian vision, that is what I call a heron-evoked democracy, where you have the veneer of a democracy. But it is about having this vast, rightless labor pool that generates enormous resources. But those resources then just flow up to a small strata of whites. And then there's another strata of whites who are told that they too can be, partake in this wealth, but they just need to do A, B, C, D, and E. And it's because they, they can't have it because of those folks who are, who are just working, 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 working. So that vast rightless labor pool is what you hear when you hear, we've got too many regulations. When you hear them trying to lower the age for child labor, vast rightless labor pool generating enormous resources that goes up to a small strata of Americans. It's a very impoverished worldview. Yes, and it's a world that does enormous damage, enormous damage, where when you think about what could happen if you could get a quality education regardless of your zip code, 
Wow. Where you were paid a living wage. Wow. Where you had real health insurance and didn't have to worry about going broke when, if you got ill and you had the ability to stay healthy. Wow. Where you had real clean drinking water. Oh my gosh. I mean, just you had access, real access to the resources of this incredibly rich, vibrant nation. So this is why the right wing requires identifying a racial other as the enemy, as the threat to the ability to, for good, honest, hardworking Americans to be able to, to thrive. No, 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 no. Yeah. Well, Dr. Carol Anderson, I so much appreciate your being here with me today on the Olmo Variety Hour for your work, for your life, and your spirit and your refusal to be discouraged. I'm sure you have your your discouraged, depressing moments, but you're an inspiration to so many. And I continue to follow your work. Is there a particular work of yours you'd like people to read and that we can highlight? I think One Person No Vote, the book that's about voter suppression, because part of the, the white rage backlash to the 2020 election was this wave of voter suppression laws that are cloaked in the language of protecting democracy, cloaked in the language of election integrity, and cloaked in the language of stopping massive rampant voter fraud. But what one person no vote lays out is how much of that is a lie and how we need to know how this works, how we're being suckered into believing we're protecting democracy when what we're actually doing is denying American citizens the right to vote. And perhaps reading that book, but also getting together with others to discuss it. So yes, I yes. appreciate that, that reading suggestion as we go into a daunting year of electoral politics where we need to be equipped. <laughs> yes, we need to be equipped. And so, and so we, we need to know, this is to me, this is the power of history. We need to know what happened. So when folks are telling us a lie, we can say, uh-uh, that's, that's not how that went down. No, X, Y, Z happened, actually. Thank you so much for being with me today on the Normal Variety Hour here on KBU, Dr. Carol Anderson. and uh, Thank you so much for having me. El amigo de todo, no amigo de nadie. Cántalo suave, lucha de clase. Cómo se hace la clave y el pase la llave para que todo esto se acabe. Todo se cae, todo se sabe. Irak, Haití, Chile combate. A liberar este mundo completo si tocan a uno. Necesito esta